0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes.
1: Good evening to all of you and welcome to the Fall 2013 Horace M. Albright Lecture in Conservation. Uh, where we're going to be hearing a presentation uh, from some really wonderful speakers on what's next for the food movement. A conversation with Kathleen Merrigan and Michael Pollan that will be moderated by Linda Schacht of our own faculty here. I'm Keith Gillis, Dean of the College of Natural Resources and a professor of forest economics uh, in real life. Uh, We're delighted that you could all come and join us this weekend. So for 50 years Uh, The Albright Lecture Series has brought to Berkeley some of the most interesting and engaging leaders in the conservation and sustainability field. It's a wonderful tribute to Horace Albright and the many achievements in his life, uh, not the least of which is being one of the people to whom we owe the greatest debt for the creation of the national park system. Uh, we're delighted to have an opportunity to use the Endowed Lecture Series in his name for the public good, continuing his legacy of public service and public discourse. Uh, It's my great pleasure this evening to welcome our moderator, Linda Schacht. Uh, She is an Emmy Award-winning television reporter with more than 20 years of experience in local television. Please join me in welcoming Linda Schacht, who will now introduce tonight's distinguished speakers. Linda.
0: Thank you, Keith. Well, hello, and thank you all for coming tonight. Uh, I think that the future of food is one of the many topics, but one of the few that uh, uh, everyone everywhere is interested in. After all, we all eat. It's also an issue that involves water policy, uh, trade agreements, water, uh, immigration policy, nutrition, science, transportation, and health care, among many other topics. Fortunately, we have two talk speakers tonight, Kathleen Merrigan and Michael Pollan, who can probably make some sense out of all of this. Kathleen was the Deputy Secretary of Agriculture until last spring. She worked with Secretary Tom Vilsack, former governor of Iowa, which may be a salient point, to oversee the day-to-day operations of the department. In 2010, she was named one of the 100 most influential people in the world by Time magazine. She was also at the Agriculture Department in the Clinton administration. She has a PhD from MIT in environmental planning and policy. And she has two children, almost teenagers, which may also influence her views on the future of food. Kathleen, welcome to Berkeley. Michael Pollan is our country's informal food guru. He's the Knight Professor of Journalism at the Graduate School here at Berkeley and the Director of the Knight Program in Science and Environmental Journalism. As you probably know, he lectures widely on food, agriculture, health, and the environment. He's written many books and articles, and he too was named one of Time's 100 Most Influential People, and in 2009, Newsweek named him one of the top ten New Thought Leaders. He's rising higher and higher. He's won awards, writes for the New York Times Magazine, and appeared in the film based on his book, *Botany of Desire, and in Food, Inc., which was nominated for an Academy Award. Michael lives in Berkeley with his wife, the artist Judith Belser, and their son, Isaac, undoubtedly one of the most well-fed young men in town. (laughs) Michael and Kathleen, will you join me on the stage, please? Kathleen...
2: So I wanted to give five thoughts about the future of the Good Food Movement and embellish them with some stories from my time as Deputy Secretary. Michael Pollan said, you really need to tell stories from when you were a deputy. And I was like, stories from the front, you know, war, old war stories. I feel like an old person. Now. I have to tell stories from my days, but so be it. So my first phrase I would ask that you think about is us versus them, the us versus them mentality. So one of the really nice afternoons that I had when I was deputy secretary was when I came back from you know, one of these thousand-hour meetings. And there was a woman who had been sitting for two hours in the reception room by my office waiting for me to arrive. And she was there. She had come from a Midwestern state. She was in the bowels of the bureaucracy in the Natural Resource Conservation Service. And she had come because she had made a very little um, pendant that had KYF2 on it. Know your farmer, know your food. The initiative that I helped lead at USDA. And it was just so charming. She was just so excited that she could participate in this work. And she wanted me to know that it had reached really the bowels of the bureaucracy, that people were just... Um, full of excitement and if there's anything that I'm proud about when I was Deputy Secretary was that I had the opportunity to unleash this creativity and this this real passion for local and regional foods and to some extent organic foods when I was at USDA. Rich Rominger is here, he's sort of the Dean of California Ag he's one of my role models, he was Deputy Secretary for the entire Clinton administration. And I found myself unemployed in those days and I remember going to Rich to ask for a job. And I remember thinking to myself, oh my God, I'm going to go work at the evil empire. That's how I thought of USDA, frankly. And now I think back and I think how naive that was, how simplistic. USDA is 110,000 employees. Largely field-based agency, 90% are outside of Washington. They're in 99 different countries around the world. And to think that everyone at USDA is of one mind is absolutely silly. And so um, I just want us to think about that when we think about the future. It's not us versus them. USDA is us. And I've got our Rural Development Director here, Glenda Humanson. She's really working on some interesting stuff about making food banks, food hubs, food hubs, food banks. Pretty neat. My um, Farm Service Agency State Director, Val Docini, I don't think he's here, but he's been really um, working on promoting microloans in California, trying to get people small amounts of money to make changes. Mark Lipson's here. He works for USDA. Um, He's a farmer from Molino Creek Cooperative in Davenport, California, and he is the Organic Sustainable Agriculture Advisor to the Secretary of Agriculture. That's pretty cool. So USDA is many, many people of many, many mindsets. And um, I think about this, this us versus them mentality, when there was some initial pushback from Congress on the Know Your Farmer, Know Your Food initiative, and there were some roll call votes in the House, and uh, people were aiming for me, I understood that. I decided to go to Oklahoma, to the heart of Frank Lucas's district. Frank Lucas is the chair of the House Agriculture Committee, not a progressive district. And I held court with a barn full of farmers in Oklahoma because I said, let's get out of the silly rhetorical game of Washington, D.C., where people become caricatures. Let me go and talk to the farmers in Oklahoma. And when we sit down and we talk, we're going to have more in agreement than disagreement. And that's exactly what happened. So my thought for the future of the food movement is that doing the us versus them mentality and vilifying farmers and that sort of thing doesn't really help and it doesn't even make sense. My second phrase, the epicenter of change is not DC, comma, duh. <laughs> so um, I was traveling, I traveled a lot as deputy secretary, I went all around the country on many, many trips, but one of the things I really remember, is sort of a funny thing, I'm at the airport, and I'm in line, and the TSA agent's getting kind of agitated because I'm, I'm digging through my purse, and I'm not finding my license right away, and, but I bring out my USDA ID to kind of authenticate myself. I'm uh, not dangerous. I'm a federal employee, and I'm still looking for that license, sir. And he said to me, oh, you pay our salary. And I said, no, you're TSA. I work at USDA. He said, no, 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 ma'am. You pay my salary and I thought the guy was a little nutty, but I just wanted to get to my next destination. It was only when I got back to the office and had some reason to mention it to our chief financial officer that he told me at that time anyhow, USDA was doing 60% of the federal payroll. So here I am. I've worked in and out of USDA my whole career, always done ag policy, and I think I really know what's going on there. And yet every day in my life as deputy secretary, I would learn new things that USDA did. And what I take from this... Is that it's really hard to know. And so, when I brought that problem statement to the local regional food system stuff, we decided to develop the compass. And I don't know how many of you have looked at this, but this is really an important tool. It's a geospatial mapping tool that's on USDA's website. You just go to the Know Your Farmer icon. And it puts out all of the investments that USDA has made over the first term on local and regional agriculture, and then some. It goes out to some other federal agencies. We began asking the Department of Transportation how to use Tiger Grants for local food. CDC, what are you doing in the local food space? HHS, what are you doing? And it's all mapped there. And what's really exciting about this, to go to my point, change doesn't begin in Washington, duh, is that this map really allows us to highlight the innovators. Whether they're people in the bureaucracies or they're people out in the countryside doing really, really exciting things. And so I really urge you to go to that map. It's a treasure trove of information. And people can network, you can meet people. Um, it's just really a wonderful, wonderful thing. And as we are coming to the close, hopefully, of a Farm Bill debate, one of the provisions that's of great concern to people is uh, what people refer to as the King Amendment that would, it's actually a um, reaction to the proposition in California on animal welfare standards and ha- particularly how much space uh, chickens have. But um, the, the amendment that's part of the House Farm Bill would restrict states' abilities to enact their own farm policy. And the National Association of State Departments of Agriculture have just come out making a very strong statement that that's not the way to go because change doesn't begin in Washington, duh. Okay, my third statement, cannibalism, comma, not good. (laughs) So even in the last couple days I've been here, I've heard from a number of students their concerns about the watering down of organic standards. Uh, We really need to go beyond organic, that sort of thing. And I want to say, really? Really? When I started at USDA, we did put a lot more money to the organic program, not what it really needs but um, more than it had. And we hired a lot of new creative staff and we declared it was the age of enforcement. So actually the standards have gotten tougher and we've put out a lot of new rulemaking, particularly on access to pasture for ruminants was a really important rule. So part of my concern here and why I say cannibalism is that people in the food movement, um, as we might call it, tend to be very critical of one another you talk to the average person on the street, they don't really know what organic means anymore, the, what's organic versus natural, and yet we have some of the most prescriptive standards, it's toughest environmental standards of any food production system in the world, I would say. And somehow that message is not getting out because people, it's like that, that thing they say, the, what's a firing squad on the left, it's a circle. <laughs> the food movement has that problem. And um, one of the things we need to do is sort of grow up the politics of the movement There's a man, Gary Madison, who works for um, Farm Credit, and he looked at organic and local together and declared it retail agriculture, and he said, if you think of it that way, it's the fifth largest commodity in U.S. agriculture. So it's time to feel that power and not, not attack one another. Fourth statement, a tale of two cities. So there's always this concern when we're talking about the food movement, are we really talking you know, about white tablecloth cloth, elitist, only if you have money kind of food, right? And that comes up in every kind of discussion. Well, one of the things that I'm really interested in the debate this year over the farm bill was a lot of talk about decoupling the nutrition programs from the farm programs, the support for farms, generally crop insurance, uh, target prices, that sort of thing. Whatever farm bill we end up with, um, does not likely look like a a game changer in any way. Um, and, And it seems like instead of decoupling, we really should be looking at this point in the time to finding the ways that those two things meld together even more than ever. And some of the innovative things that are going on around farmers markets and... Uh, special nutrition benefits that can be redeemed at farmers markets, you get a twofer. You help support the local economy and farmers, and you help support hungry people, get he- healthier you know, food. It makes a lot of sense. We should be doing more of that. And my story here really is the beginning of this administration, when I was really excited about healthy food issues um, and, you know, it was at the beginnings of the new dietary guidelines, which now is the my plate and half a plate should be fruits and vegetables. I heard from um, Secretary Sebelius. I heard from our First Lady. I heard from uh, all policy leaders across the board that fruits and vegetables were just too expensive. If we try to give you know, more fruits and vegetables, help people eat more fruits and vegetables, it's cost prohibitive. Actually, the economic research of USDA does regular studies that shows that's actually not true. And so part of my life as Deputy Secretary was to be a mythbuster on this issue. Because if you start with the assumption that fruits and vegetables are too expensive, then you've already given up the game. And what I look at is, when I look at fruits and vegetables, if we're really trying to move toward that half a plate and increase consumption in this country, we have seen imports of fruits and vegetables since 1994 really skyrocket. Even fruits and vegetables that we grow in this country, during the season they're grown. To me, that just shouts loud and clear opportunity, opportunity for this next generation of farmers that we need to grow where they can, on very small acreage, do high-value crops in local communities. What a win. Last phrase, the error of hard work. So I feel that politically, in a lot of ways, we've gone through the eye of the storm on a lot of these issues. It's okay now. It's politically safe to say organic agriculture or local or regional agriculture. Um, These things are talked about in the halls of power. That's all good. but it's, it's really a new era. And I think of the time of pink slime. Do you remember pink slime? Yeah. Well, this is a filler that's in hamburger. It's basically when they're extracting chemically every last bit of meat on that animal. And I was the first person on USDA to speak publicly about pink slime, and I said it's safe, because it is. Whether it's palatable, whether it's what you want to eat, I don't know. But to me, what the story is here is that the industry has figured out how to use every last bit of that animal. It's so darn efficient. And then I look at my girlfriend who's raising, you know, pasture chickens and she's selling them at $4.50 a pound, and that's at the farm gate, let alone what added cost would be by the time it gets to retail. I, you know, I'm like, we, we have to figure out better systems where we have rendering and we have use of the whole animal I mean, we haven't figured a lot of things out in the food movement, so to speak. Um, Even when we do things well, I went to a farm-to-school program up in Boston. It was great. They had the garden. They had, actually, a nice kitchen with cooking facilities not all schools have anymore. They had a food corps champion there cheering the kids on to make good food choices, which they did. They had locally grown food. And I sat next to a young teenager in the cafeteria, and she proceeded to put... 14, 14 um, of those uh, containers of ketchup on our food. I was so discouraged. We haven't figured a lot of things out. Crop rotations, we know the value of crop rotations, but to do a really good crop rotation, it might be 12 or 15 years, and we haven't figured out the economics of all those different crops. The good food movement is also not going to be just about heirloom tomatoes. It's not about going back. I was at an intriguing meeting that Dan Barber, the chef, Um, in New York, one of our famous chefs in the country, held a few weeks ago with breeders and scientists and uh, chefs. And I remember this uh, scientist from Cornell saying in his entire career, he had never been asked to breed for taste, only for resistance and yield. And he was really excited that chefs wanted him to breed for taste. So when I think about the future, it's going to involve technology, it's going to involve a lot of urban agriculture it's going to involve vertical farms it's going to involve things that we can't even imagine now and I think that's a very good thing and that's why I'm so very thrilled to be here uh, not only honored to be part of the Albright Lecture Series and to honor a great leader in history but to be here at the cusp of uh, the Berkeley Food Institute which is needed now more than ever. Thank you very much.
3: Thank you, Kathleen. Um, it's, a, it's an honor to share the stage with both Linda uh, Schacht, a journalist I really admire, and Kathleen Merrigan, who, I don't know how closely you follow these issues, but um, whatever uh, positive steps have been made during the Obama administration toward um, uh, helping to foster local food, toward raising consciousness around uh, organic food, uh, it's either been Kathleen Merrigan or Michelle Obama we have to thank for uh, uh, what good has come out of this administration. So um, I'm a great admirer of Kathleen's and I'm very happy to be here with her. Um, I'm going I'm to make just a couple remarks uh, because I want to get to our conversation. Um, but uh, I've been giving a lot of thought, uh, beginning about a year ago, to uh, you know, the, the, the question that we said, what's next for the food movement? There are assumptions built into that, uh, one of which, one of the most salient, is that there is a food movement. Um, and I have to say, I, I, have, I started using that term in my writing before I actually believed it was true, um, thinking by sheer force of repetition um, <laughs> that we could bring it into being. Um, because it doesn't look a lot like a movement uh, from certain perspectives. Um, I mean, think of what makes it up. It's a big lumpy tent. Uh, you have people passionate about animal welfare. Uh, you have people passionate about hunger and, and food banks. Uh, you have people uh, working on organic agriculture, on farm-to-school programs, on teaching kids about food, on labeling issues of various kinds. And they don't all. Um, and there, there. I made a list for an article I was working on, and there were like twelve or fifteen. Strong, distinct threads, and many of them were at cross purposes. Um, so, for example, there are people in the hunger movement who uh, are troubled by things going on in sustainable agriculture because they're worried it may increase the the cost of food, or people who are very concerned about nutrition who'd like to put some restrictions on what you could spend your SNAP dollars on, which is anathema to people uh, in the in the Ugly, named hunger lobby, um, and so there are there are these tensions, and there is then also the definitely the circular firing squad that we see, especially in organics, uh, which we should talk a little bit more about. It's clearly a social movement. And it's clearly an economic movement. It's a market. Um, as Kathleen said, organic alone is now the fifth biggest uh, commodity, if you look at it that way. Um, and uh, somebody told me recently organic is now 5% of the food market and 12% of the fresh produce market, and, uh, which is pretty impressive, um, considering that this is a movement that uh, developed that without, until Kathleen's help, a lot of help from the uh, the federal government. Um, So I wasn't really sure it was a political movement though. Did it have the power to force change uh, in Washington or anywhere else? Um, Could it demand its issues uh, get addressed And I thought the first test came last year uh, with Proposition 37, um, the effort to label genetically modified food. However important you think that is as an issue, a lot of resources went into it. A lot of political work went into it. Um, And it ultimately failed. It came close, but it failed. Um, And I thought that that was a very interesting test of um, had this movement come of age politically. Um, By the way, when I was... Uh, chewing on this question, I asked one of our um, more esteemed faculty members for some guidance, Troy Duster, the sociologist. And I said, is this, is this food thing a movement in your view? And, uh, and he, he's, he reminded me something uh, of something very important. He said, you know, no political movement uh, is quite as incoherent as it looks up close. And no political movement is as uh, coherent as it looks from a a great distance. So uh, that was heartening, I thought. Um, these defeats, though, turned out to be, I think, uh, unexpected victories on GM labeling. We just had another one in, in Washington State. Again, fell short. Um, the final tally, though, is, is, is uh, not as discouraging as the initial one last week. It, uh, apparently, in the final tally, 49% of the people in Washington State voted to label GM. Um, since these votes, we've had a lot more attention to the issue in Washington, a lot of pressure uh, to come up with a federal standard, and I think the hand of people who were fighting for that uh, was strengthened by these votes. But to me, the, the, the first concrete evidence that I see the beginning of a, of a real political force here can be told in dollars. I calculate that in the last year, that agribusiness, and I don't mean to vilify anyone, but I will, um, <laughs> uh, that agribusiness has spent $100 million or more to stop the agenda of the food movement. That's $45 million in California fighting Prop 37. It's $22 million fighting uh, Prop 522 in Washington. And throw in another $40 million for um, uh, uh, the food dialogues and the other PR efforts that have been launched by the Farm Bureau and other people to essentially, as the Farm Bureau has said, um, fight the food activists. Um, $100 million uh, indicates that the food movement has gotten the attention of the industry. Um, And uh, so I expect... Um, So I'm heartened by that. Um, Even though there are defeats here, but there always are defeats. It takes a generation to fight some of these battles. It's a complicated movement. It's not like gay rights. It's not like pro-choice. There is not a single uh, thing that we all line up behind. And maybe we'll begin to find that. Maybe we'll, we'll begin to define and ask. That, um, that the whole movement can get behind, but I kind of doubt it. Don't you? <laughs> it's, such a, it's, such a, it's such a complicated organism. But it's very exciting to watch as it matures. It's very young. We've just begun. And hopefully this conversation this evening will, will advance that uh, cause just a little bit. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you both. This may seem a bit fanciful, but imagine a world in which Kathleen Merrigan was the Secretary of Agriculture and Michael Pollan was the Speaker of the House. What, if anything, we'll leave the White House the way it is, what, if anything, would be different?
3: We had a speaker of the oh you have to use microphones. Yes. Uh, we had a speaker of, a house, of the House a Democrat who was very supportive of food reform, and that was Nancy Pelosi. Um, but when she actually had a chance to do much about it, she suddenly turned um, uh, very unsupportive and decided that her highest priority was keeping the newly elected members of the uh, of the Democratic caucus on the House ag. Um, Uh, committee in place and so um, they're powerful forces I mean I think one of the mistakes we make and I'm sure Kathleen uh, can speak to this is that having merely having the right person elected president house speaker um, uh, or department of uh, secretary of agriculture doesn't necessarily guarantee that they can snap their fingers and make something happen Um, the large parts of the government are captured um, and there is uh, so I think it's a, I think it's a challenge.
2: Well, um, so Michael's Speaker, and that's great. I'd always <laughs> thank the, you. I'd always prefer the Senate, though. I have Senate attitude, having been a staff person right. there. But the
0: I, House is more problematic right
2: now. It's definitely. Um, I would probably wish you very well and say you know Godspeed, but I would really focus in on the programs I had in hand, and that was really something that was in my mind when I came in as deputy. So often when we think of doing something important, we think, well, we have to have a new law, and you spend years getting that law passed, and then you have to spend years getting that law funded. And I knew when I came in that the sand was going through the hourglass, and so that was sort of how do I make every program that we have at USCA work better? For local and regional food systems. So that was one of my things. Um, I would say, in the first week, uh, to the extent that I could, and you always have to do this in negotiation with others, to Michael's point, I would probably say it is time to um, put some restrictions on how SNAP dollars are spent. Ooh, huh. Um, uh, I, we did not grant New York uh, State's request for a waiver to try out. Um, putting restrictions on junk food, soda, primarily.
3: Uh, tell, me, tell us about that. W- what were the politics of that? Why was that considered a bad idea in USDA?
2: Well, I can tell you why initially I had some concerns. Poor people are vilified. I, I guess it's going to be the word of the night for me. But uh, there was just a big expose in the Washington Post this weekend. It was like a two-pager. And it was the same old story I've read over and over again. It was about a mom who's on Snap, Food stamps, I assume people know that that's what we're talking about Who has type 2 diabetes and her two or three kids um, Are not eating well, they're unhealthy, they're having chips for breakfast And yabba dabba do. You know what, there are a lot of people who are on SNAP that are also eating healthy diets And we have enough data that shows that people who are on SNAP Are not eating in you know, far worse diets than the rest of us We have all that data and so part of it is um, the kind of put down of poor people That that's, that's part of it. And I think that we have to um, come to terms with that. So hang up. that's one thing I do. The other thing I would do, and this follows up in your conversation about all of the whirlwind of activity around the propositions on GMO labeling, is I would go back to the... Deal that we made when we did the final rulemaking for the National Organic Standards, when Rich was deputy and Dan Glickman was secretary, and at the request of many, many, including Monsanto, was that organic be GMO free. Okay, that's true. But right now, the US Department of Agriculture does not allow organic livestock producers to label their products GMO free. How do we know? Well, maybe because the people down the hall are, have this whole process and standards and certification and accreditation. so And FDA doesn't allow it. So for people who are really looking for a clear choice in the marketplace and there's all this fuzziness, what's the difference between organic and natural, I would declare it very clearly on the label. And you know all that other stuff and all that energy will probably continue on. But why not make that de- declaration clear. So those are two things I do in week one.
3: Can I, can I add something to that? Absolutely. Those are good things. Um, you know, the, I think the other thing I would do, now that I've had a little more time to think about it, uh, is as uh, Speaker of the House, is repopulate the agriculture committees. Mm-hmm. Right now, it's dominated by farm state legislators. So you, you end up having committees that are more concerned with producers than consumers of food. And um, I would use all the political um, uh, pressure I could bring to bear to bring some urban legislators onto those committees and get people on there who represent eaters. Um, And I think that until we do that, we're not going to get very far with the Farm Bill Um, because so many things in Washington depends on the initial conditions of the game, the rules of the game and the rules of this game. Uh, make it very hard to reform the Farm Bill. So I think I'd start with those I, committees. I have
2: to tell a story. Go ahead. Sorry. It's no problem. I mentioned it to one of the classes I spoke to. So when you go for confirmation, you know, and I had a Senate-confirmed position, you, and this is the downside of being an academic, you have to hand over everything you've ever written. And I wrote this very um, interesting chapter in a sleepy little book called Visions of American Agriculture, in which I wrote, it was time to abolish the Senate Agriculture Committee. Um, (laughs) The very committee that had to confirm me. (laughs) You know, when Senator Bacchus said, would you rethink that book chapter? I said, yes, sir. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But the exact same thesis, though, um, and what was really encouraging this last uh, couple years in the House Agriculture Committee is there were a whole lot of new people from the Northeast that were on the committee. They weren't um, senior. They weren't necessarily on the committees. They wanted to be on the subcommittees. But, for example, Joe Courtney, a Democrat from Connecticut, he was, was the first time someone from Connecticut was on the Agriculture Committee in 100 years. So that little Northeast Um, group of people met regularly, and I met with them to talk about farm policy, but you're right, an infusion of people from different walks of life on those committees, or breaking up some of those issues across other kinds of committees of jurisdiction, could really change the game.
0: So where did you find the frustrations and the barriers to what you thought the Department of Agriculture should be doing?
2: Well, um, everything takes a lot longer than it should. You have to have a lot of patience in these jobs. And um, it's just...
0: You have to have a lot of patience if you're a citizen too.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: Waiting for something to happen.
2: Yeah. And it's also, in these jobs, it's just like a, a fire hose of issues coming at you. So I will, you know, I stepped down as deputy secretary. It's been just about six months this week. And people remember me for the things that I did. But, you know, in some ways, the really interesting untold stories are the things that I stopped. We're open
0: to hearing those. (laughs) Yeah, I'm
2: sure you are. (laughs) (laughs) But, I mean, I I think that these jobs are, um, you know, 110,000 employees, $150 billion budget, 17 agencies, thousands of offices, um, 25,000 buildings. I mean, it's just a huge... Huge task and it's really hard To sleep at night because You just don't know what you don't know Like there's only So much you can know running that kind of Bureaucracy and you have to have Good people who work with you and you have to have a lot Of trust and you
0: cross your Fingers. What was your biggest disappointment? Oh my biggest Disappointment or your Um, Most happy moment either one
3: No 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 (laughs) Disappointment (laughs) get to the happy moments later.
2: (laughs) Oh, my biggest disappointment. Well, um, you know, I think that I would have liked to um, get farther along in school meals than we're at. I think there's still a lot of room to improve those meals. We've made great strides and I'm really grateful that our First Lady has made healthy food one of her two signature issues. That makes a huge difference. Um, but there are so many kids that that's their only meal of the day. It's just amazing that we have 47 million people in this country that are on food stamps, right? One in seven. And we know that we're not giving food stamps to all the people who are eligible. About 35% of eligible elderly are getting food stamps. So um, part of me is, is just you know still raring to go to improve school meals, and I think one of the real shining opportunities is increased effort around farm-to-school because I think that's one of those win-win-win-win-win kind of issues.
0: You are also a great proponent of small farmers and female farmers. Did mm-hmm. you find you had success in those areas?
2: Well, certainly... Um, Trying to get the bureaucracy to chunk out money in smaller amounts, I was saying to, this, to some students earlier today, it's a lot easier if you've got a grant program or you've got some sort of program you have to give out loans or whatever to give them out in big chunks. It's less work, it's less risk, it tends to go to the sure bets. And it's really hard to get people to say, you know, I'm not going to give out $250,000 grants, I'm going to give out $5,000 grants. And all of a sudden my workload zooms. Um, so I think we were able to do a lot more of that and increase the thinking that helps not only small farmers and ranchers, but small businesses, small entrepreneurs. Um, so that was good. And what was the other part of your question? Um, well, Women. Women. Okay. Women. So, yeah. The Economic Research Service came out with a report, was my last week, and we timed it that way, uh, talking about women farmers. And in the last Census of Agriculture, which was conducted in 2007, we do it every five years. We're now finishing up the, the current census, and it takes the department a couple of years to really aggregate, it, aggregate and analyze the data. But we see an upward trend in women farmers, young women, many of whom don't hail from the farmer ranch. They're starting businesses anew. They're interested in local, regional, organic, alternative ways of production. They're more likely to have an enterprise that has a pick-your-own agritourism, a more complicated model. I think that's really exciting, and um, I'm really interested in pipelining leaders that are women, um, not only because of this upward trend uh, in incoming, but also on the other end of the pipeline, because women outlive men, you have widows deciding the fate of our working lands and our forested lands. And I think we need to figure out um, more ways to engage women in leadership positions um, because because, because, because.
3: Um, can I just follow up? I think it's one of the more exciting uh, developments is that the, the, the future face of the American farmer is much more uh, female than it's, than it's ever been. Um, I'm surprised to hear you say that most of the resistance to what you wanted to do was essentially bureaucratic inertia. Did you, when did you ever run up against a political or economic wall? of interests, of the White House overruling something you wanted to do, the OMB. I mean, surely it wasn't all just, you know, the molasses of bureaucracy.
2: Well, you know, I think, and I suppose whatever we call this food movement, is it or isn't it, I think that conspiracy theories are given way more weight than they should. I always I was like, well, what about the theory of incompetence? Well, I think that's undervalued as an explanation. <laughs> uh, I mean, uh, I, I certainly did at times come up against um, blockages that I wasn't able to go around, but persistence and using um, analytical data, that sort of stuff, I mean, that's why... It's real exciting to be at a university, a university that wants to talk about food systems because we need a lot more thinking to really propel forward. And so I I tried to wrap myself around you know with data Mm -hmm. I actually made a lot of progress. Again, there were people around the country who I never met before in these field offices, USA, and they were so excited and they had banners and they made their own brochures on know your farmers. So I think that we had some cultural change there, and um, I couldn't think of all the ideas that we needed to do. I mean, most of the things I get credit for was somebody else's idea. I just figured out a way to elevate and execute, but that's the thing is like, how do you empower all those people who are there on a day-to-day basis who have creative ideas and find a way for them to carry forward? I gave them political clout
3: right and, and improved their morale. I mean I meet these people all the time when I, sp- I was speaking last night in Napa, and uh, a USDA uh, employee who working in a local office there. their pride for what they 're able to do for local farmers is palpable, and they really feel empowered by, and that 's largely by what you did. but why is something as seemingly like obviously a good idea as? Promoting um, farm to school and know your food, know your farmer. Why did you get pushback on that? I mean, you said you had to go to Frank Lucas's district. Why was that controversial? I don't, why does that bother big ag?
2: It shouldn't, I don't think it does anymore, but in the, early, in the earlier years, it did. I mean, it was a big um, firestorm of activity. Uh, and I, I use the example one of the things that we did with the Environmental Quality Incentives Program, EQIP. It's the second largest conservation program that USDA has, the first one being the Conservation Reserve Program, CRP. We did a new initiative for seasonal high tunnels or hoop houses, temporary greenhouse-like structures that allows a farmer to put in crops earlier, keep them in later, so you have more um, product for the local marketplace. And I remember people were like, oh, that's taken away from you know the traditional uses of EQIP. And it was highly popular, and I think we spent something like $30 million in their early part of the initiative, but out of a $2 billion program. So, um, so I it think it's.
3: competition that, for resources? Some competition people were for resources,
2: of. Ang- anxiety about that. But I think what the real deal breaker is now, and where people are interested about the future of food, the real, um, the real change on the horizon is the necessity to repopulate our working lands with the aging farmer. You all know the staff's age, average age of farmer is about 60 years of age. Um, and we really need to figure out who this new generation of people are and what those farms of the future are going to look like. And I think it's going to be really different and it's going to change the
0: politics of agriculture. Yeah, I think you're right. Let's talk about the farm bill. Uh, it should be locked Lock the doors. Together should be coming together in the next few weeks. Mm. What is the status, as far as you know, and does it include or will it include any reforms of any nature? Are there good things going on? I don't think that this Farm Bill has
2: any, as I said at the podium, any game-changing major aspects to it. Uh, It has to happen eventually because it's. I'm glad I'm not Deputy Secretary not knowing how to manage the department because the farm bill does control a lot of your programs. And there are a few good ones that have languished because there hasn't been a farm bill. Um, Tick-tock, tick-tock, Congress needs to move. Um, They're going to recess for Thanksgiving soon. Then they come back. They have a couple weeks in December, and then you bump up right against the uh, January 15th deadline for a budget deal, and some people wonder if it's all going to become one um, can of soup Because the Farm Bill is hopefully going to create some budget savings, so people want that as part of a budget package. But, you know, we've got almost 50 members not locked in a room, Mm -hmm. to your point, and um, with very divergent opinions. A big issue, of course, is SNAP the food stamp program. The House would cut $39 billion over 10 years. The Senate would cut $4 billion over 10 years. Those are very big differences. Um, And beyond that, we have members on the conference committee who have radically different views on that. So whether they'll come to agreement on consensus on that, I don't know. They did have big savings in the SNAP program on November 1st when the bump up in the benefit to families that had been put into place through the Recovery Act, the stimulus bill, ARA at the beginning of the Obama administration expired. So that may help them get a little bit Closer to yes, but there's still there's still huge divides. I don't this, know, Michael, what your thoughts are. Well,
3: uh, yeah, I'm not as close to the details, and I, I'm curious about a couple things. Um, I mean, we've seen a, a, a shift over the la- from the last farm bill, or maybe the one before, from things like direct payments and what we commonly think of as subsidies to uh, crop insurance being the, the the centerpiece of it, and. Um, uh, and I'm curious to know whether you think that that represents a better way to support farmers than the way we've done it in the past. Um, and and, my, and then a subsidiary question to that is, there was an effort to make crop insurance work for organic and diversified farmers. I think Shelley Pingree had introduced uh, a provision, and has that survived so far?
2: Both the House and the Senate have um, provisions that would make crop insurance better for your smaller Diversified farmers. Um, Peter Welch and Pat Leahy from Vermont have been very active in that. So there will be some good reforms on uh, crop insurance. Yeah, so we've subsidized crop insurance, a lot of places, 60% sometimes. The big issue I think that's important for the Farm Bill and Crop Insurance is tying and Rich and I were just talking about this um, earlier tonight, making sure that we tie your ability to have crop insurance, subsidized crop insurance, that benefit from the ge- federal government to conservation compliance, mm-hmm. meaning you're following certain ro- rules of the road, and that remains to be seen whether that will happen. Direct payments everyone expects to go away, but hasn't yet really. Mm. And um,
3: this we'll is s- money. This is five billion dollars paid to farmers, whether no strings attached. No strings attached, whether they're growing food or not.
2: Yeah. So there are different kinds of subsidies, you know, and I talked about this in class this morning. You've got the direct payments, and everyone basically is saying bye-bye to those. And then there are different kinds of ways where we set target prices and... Loan deficiency, we have a lot of different things where we're trying to make up the difference to help farmers out. Then we have crop subsidies, you know, crop insurance subsidies, and then we have conservation programs where we cost share, like those seasonal high tunnels. So when people talk about farm subsidies, the next question you have to ask them is what subsidies are you talking about? So you get to that next level of conversation.
0: There was a headline in the New York Times just this week that. Um, that subsidies in recent years had paid over $11 million to people who are billionaires, I suppose, involved in agribusiness at the same time that they're talking about cutting food stamps. How do you make that stop? How do you change that equation?
2: Well, this is work that's been put out by the Environmental Working Group. They have had for a number of years... A farm subsidy database, so you can go to EWG's website, and it actually will tell you who gets the money. And so that's why they have this. They always identify people who are not on the land but own the land, and yet the checks that are go they'd be going into some Park Avenue address or whatever. Or San
3: Francisco, very often, actually.
2: Anyone I know? No? no. So, so, so there, there is this sort of system. Um, one of the things that they're trying to do in tightening up this, in this farm bill is the definition of actively engaged in terms of getting some of the benefits. And there's always a lot of energy around the issue of payment limitations. What is the maximum amount of money you can get across a variety of federal programs to any one entity? So th- those are issues in play.
3: Uh, One one thing I'd I'd point out is we've moved from uh, these subsidies that can be tracked publicly by Environmental Working Group because it's public information who's receiving a government subsidy. The rules of crop insurance, as I understand, are different. Um, And so whoever's receiving huge uh, payments for crop insurance – we, we won't know who those people are. An environmental working group won't be able to bring that kind of pressure to bear on the system, which I think is really unfortunate.
2: Well, crop insurance is done by private companies. That's part of it. That's and part of it.
3: That's right. we subsidize it. So. We subsidize the companies, yeah. yeah. So, but, but the point is the, the money trail is lost for the purposes of journalism and uh, advocacy.
0: How do you scale up the amount of healthy food that's available to people all over the country not just in urban areas where people are really concentrating on it but how do you see the whole movement grow so that people outside Oakland or San Francisco are also have access to healthy diets
2: well we know that um, we have a problem because food access is not equal right so we actually have Many examples where people are buying Their fruits and vegetables at corner stores Maybe even the liquor store Where they're paying more money for a lesser quality food So one of the things the First Lady Has been very involved in And USDA has been championing Is trying to address what these so-called food desert issues are And ways that we can address them Through mobile um, grocery stores Through farmers markets Through um, Food hubs, uh, there are a lot of different things that need to be done, but it's certainly, to your point, Linda, there's definitely unequal access, and that's, that's something that we, we've got to focus on.
3: Yeah, I don't think people realize that some of the, the the worst food deserts are in the farm belt. One of the things that really struck me when I was doing research in Iowa is how hard it is to find fresh produce in Iowa because farmers are growing i mean it 's almost like a colony where you know they, they, they export raw materials in the form of corn and soybeans and then it gets processed in Minneapolis or Chicago, and then they have to buy it back and it 's processed food. Um, and this is this is one of the reasons that this emphasis on local food systems that Kathleen has been so deeply involved in is important. When people are selling locally, they tend to be selling food that is not processed and is um, uh, is is whole foods. Um, but a lot of farmers in the Midwest, ha- I mean can't get in on that game, or at least under the previous rules of of receiving subsidies. Um, You know, you're forbidden if you're taking, if you have corn or bean land, and you you take subsidies for that, you're forbidden from growing produce, which I gather is a sop to California uh, legislators who don't want (laughs) to compete with Iowa broccoli growers for broccoli. Um, so, one of the things we need to do is remove any restrictions on farmers and figure out a way to do that so that someone who 's got a thousand acres of corn and bean and wants to do ten acres of tomatoes or, or vegetables for local consumption can do that because you were talking about going out to frank lucas 's district and, and you know you have farmers outrage because of something they've heard from the Farm Bureau. But when you actually talk to them, and I've had the same thing, because I've had farmers, uh, Farm Bureau you know, calls to protest, talks I've done and things like that. But as soon as you actually get in a conversation and you talk about new markets, this is music to their ears. The thing that conventional farmers hate more than anything else is the fact that they are price takers and that they only usually have one person they can sell to. That doesn't feel very good when you take your corn and beans to the, to the um, elevator and you take the price they're giving you. And um, so one of the great things that is opened up by this local food movement is uh, the possibility that you might have some other places to sell what you're growing. And I think that's a powerful message that is the way to, to start winning over um, uh, conventional farmers to, to trying some new things.
0: How do you think the American diet, the American way of eating, um, affects populations in emerging countries?
3: Not so well. Well. Well... Go ahead. You Go ahead. Well, you know, American food has a glamour in the world, um, uh, and um, uh, you know, whenever KFC comes into a developing country, um, it's it's normally very popular. It's heavily marketed, um, and um, uh, and there there's a lot done to market food in the developing world that we should be concerned about. I mean, Coca-Cola is you know, selling little three and four ounce inexpensive bottles of soda in the developing world to essentially give people a taste for Coca-Cola that they'd never had before. Um, so a lot of it's marketing, but on balance, um, you know, I, I think it's been, um, you know, I mean, there've been nutritional gains too. I mean, access to more meat, um, which is part of the Western diet. Uh, is, uh, you know, meat is very nutritious food to people who have been subsisting on staple grains. Um, So it's a mixed bag, it's not all bad. Um, But as we watch this nutrition transition taking place across the world, it should give us a lot of concern because you see countries like China now uh, where people are moving very quickly onto a Western diet and they're seeing rates of of heart disease and type two diabetes and obesity that they've never seen before. Um, and it puts enormous strain on resources. Um, to, you know, to, to feed the Chinese appetite for meat now, we're deforesting the Amazon to grow soybeans. That, and um, so it ramifies around the world. And, um, and and who are we to say that you can't eat this way that we're eating? Um, we're setting an example, and it's, it's, it's a problematic e- example from a health point of view and an environmental point of view.
0: Do you see that... Uh, leaders in governments in, in emerging countries are interested in changing the eating habits of the people who live there
3: well I just heard about a, a meeting that 's happening next week in Addis Ababa of, of leaders of, of, of food systems and and uh, and one of the items on the agenda i 'm told is how to develop how to create a developed food system that doesn't make the mistakes of the Western food system. (laughs) I was so encouraged by
0: this. (laughs) Um,
2: So many of those those leaders, I mean, we sit here and say, oh, my God, how can we have 47 million people in this country on SNAP? And you think what the magnitude of challenges if you're in a developing country. And the hunger there is just so... Seemingly intractable. How do you deal with those problems? So, uh, the exigencies that they face are really so different than what we face. Mm-hmm. Um, I've spent quite a bit of time at the Food Agriculture Organization, the United Nations in Rome. Tough assignment, someone has to go. <laughs> um, and, you know, I do meet with these ministers of agriculture from around the world. One of the big issues that particular leaders particularly leaders in Africa have to deal with is their own um, country's take on whether or not to accept food aid from the United States if that food might be genetically modified. And um, Cholestis Juma from the Harvard um, Kennedy School has always been very outspoken that these countries need to develop their own biosafety regime so that they can in their own right, make decisions about what they want to do. But that's been a pretty interesting um, debate that's been going on the last, I don't know, five
0: years or so. Michael, you There's mentioned earlier uh, that, that uh, the amount of money that had been spent opposing uh, labeling of GMOs, um, and also you took some heart from the fact that uh, in Washington State, it was a 49% vote in favor of labeling. Where do you think all of that is headed now?
3: Uh, well, I, I mean, honestly, I don't know, but, um, but I'm happy to speculate. Um, <laughs> 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 I mean, I think pressure is building to do something about labeling. Uh, and, they, and I think it, would, it, it should happen in Washington. It's kind of crazy to have every state having its own labeling laws and, and redesigning packages and, and supply lines for different states. Um, I think that the, the coalition that has successfully beat back labeling is not as I was saying about the food movement is not quite as coherent as it might look you have an awkward situation if you're a grocery manufacturer not, not the grocery manufacturers association but if you're General Mills or PepsiCo or whoever it is, it's very uncomfortable to be seen throwing so much money at something that half of your consumers want. That's just not where you want to be in the food market. And for that reason, on this last fight in Washington, uh, the GMA tried to hide the identity of its contributors. And the Secretary of State in Washington sued and got all that information out, but it was clear that General Mills and whoever else said to the GMA, their their trade organization, look, we'll give you money, but we don't want our name attached to this. So I think that this weird alliance between Monsanto and the manufacturers uh, is not long for this world. Um, it, it just doesn't make sense um, from a marketing point of view. And you have to imagine the marketers in those companies are screaming, like, how do we find ourselves in this? We don't care if the food's genetically modified or not, we can make our corn chips with, you know, any other kind of corn. Um, Yes, it might be hard to switch over, um, but in fact, also consumers may be happy to buy it with the label. It's not a a foregone conclusion that that label will be the kiss of death.
2: I I don't think it necessarily will be, but what's interesting...
3: We eat a lot of crazy stuff.
2: (laughs) We do. They're banning trans fats I'm I'm really worried about my tootsie
3: rolls But um,
2: anyhow Can you make
3: a tootsie roll without trans fats? I don't know,
2: I hope we can find that out Um, (laughs) I just just think that um, I, I mentioned this in the class this morning There was a time in my Career where I tell people I work in ag policy and I'd be left alone in the party with my gin and tonic in the corner. I'm like, like, oh, she's a bore, <laughs> right? And I probably am. But I mean, there may be more explanation. I'm blaming it all on my career. But anyhow, now I say I work in ag policy and I'm the belle of the ball, right? People want to talk about food. They want to know where their food comes from, who produced it, how it was produced. And that's a really great thing. Even if sometimes those conversations are divisive, Um, inconclusive. I think it's really exciting that people are talking. And part of that means that there is a demand for greater transparency in the food system. I mentioned pink slime earlier. Cargill just announced that they're going to start labeling it. The official name, by the way, is lean, finely textured beef.
3: (laughs) On that on that same point, I agree. I think that this is this is probably uh, getting the attention of the uh, of the food industry. This interest in the story behind food, and Chipotle is another very interesting case that we've seen recently. They, you know, they've been doing some very uh, sustainable sourcing uh, of their meat for a long time, um, especially on the pork side, and then now local sourcing of meat uh, all around the country. But they never wanted to talk about it, and they didn't talk about it. And I I remember asking the president, um, why aren't you making more of this? You have a great story to tell. He says, well, I don't think people buying a burrito want to be reminded they're eating an animal. Okay, and so they didn't talk about it in their stores for a long time, but now they've come forward and they've done these viral videos, which are kind of ingenious, and um, uh, they're long, and they've gotten a lot of attention, and it turns out consumers very much care and want to hear this story, especially when it comes to animal, um, and that they I don't think it's an accident that in the last quarter, their sales, while other fast foods were flat, McDonald's was flat, their sales were up 15%. This is getting the attention of the industry. You need a defensible and preferably appealing story to tell about the food you're selling.
0: You mentioned the ban on trans fats, which the FDA announced last week. Where does that come from? What's other than research, I assume, health research? Is that the principal um, incentive for that to happen? But, Michael, in the conversation you and I had about that, you said um, that's the only really positive thing the Obama FDA has done.
3: Yeah, that was probably a little bit uh, harsh. I mean... (laughs) The, the Obama FDA has been disappointing to me in various ways on issues like antibiotics and livestock, where they came in, uh, Margaret Hamburg came in intent on doing something about it. And she, uh, she actually uh, said to a, um, uh, an NGO person I know, we're going to treat this issue as if our hair is on fire. Well, the fire has been put out. Uh, Evidently, I mean, very little is happening on that issue. Uh, There's some voluntary guidelines coming into to space, but they've done good work on uh, labeling. They got a lot of really uh, deceptive health claims off of cereal boxes right when they came in, and I think that was important. Trans fats is very important. the, the amount in the diet and in the food supply had come down since they started labeling it. This was a case where labeling had a big effect on the on the constitution of foods. And now that, in effect, they're, they're all but banning them by removing the, the generally regarded as safe status. I think trans fats are a great cautionary tale, though, too. I mean, if you look at the history of it, why are we eating trans fats? Well... We began eating trans fats because we had demonized uh, saturated fat, animal fats. And as part of the low-fat low campaign, everybody was told you're better off with vegetable fats. And so I know as a kid growing up, we got off the butter and we got onto the Mazzola. And, um, and this seemed like the right thing to do. And it was a, a, a tremendous public health uh, mistake. Um, and we've learned that belatedly. And, um, and it, but I think it's a cautionary tale that sometimes the solution to a problem is a lot worse than the problem, uh, which turned out actually not to be a problem.
0: It actually is a trans
3: fat.
2: I can couldn't, I couldn't scientifically explain it. I'm sure some of our great professors in the audience would get me out of this bind. Are you ready, Michael? Uh,
3: well, I think more... Yeah. <laughs> Basically, it's a, a vegetable fat, uh, corn oil, say, or something like that, that if you um, fire hydrogen into it at high temperatures, um, changes its constitution so that it's solid at room temperature. Seems kind of innocuous. Yeah.
0: We have a question. But it
3: gives you heart attacks. It really does. Yeah. And, I mean, there's, no, there's very little evidence, in fact, less than most people think, that saturated fat is linked to heart disease. Um, uh, but it's replacement has definitively been linked to heart disease.
0: Okay, a question from the audience. What can we do locally here in Berkeley other than shop at the Berkeley Student Food Collective, of course? (laughs) I think this is a general question that a lot of people would have uh, based on your knowledge and experience, which is what can we all do? Uh, What would be the one thing each of you would recommend that people do? to promote uh, a healthy food system.
2: You have to midnight on Friday to submit your comments to the Food Safety Modernization Act rulemaking of the Food and Drug Administration, Uh, postmarked Friday or um, submitted electronically by midnight. These are new um, proposed rules that are intended to enhance food safety in this country. I think uh, uh, unintentionally, really because it's a very ambitious rulemaking from a statute that says everyone has to upgrade food safety. It's sort of a one-size-fits-all kind of proposal for the most part, and there's a lot of very serious concern about how it's going to impact smaller operations. Um, and I think if you don't know about it, uh, doing some quick Googling, you'll find out a lot of information. And... It's really important to raise your voice now. Uh, it's a game changer. I couldn't they agree really more. They really
0: pay attention? Y-
3: yes, they, they do. To. I mean, these are draft rules, and if you go to the National Campaign for Sustainable Agriculture is, is I think, kind of leading the campaign to get them uh, refined. And, um, but they will take comments as they rewrite them. And from what I've been able to learn from people at the FDA, they've been educated about, the provisions that are potentially very damaging to small and, and especially organic farms, um, and that they intend to revise them. So, the more comments they get, the, the better the chances we'll end up with some rules that don't um, abort this renaissance of local farming, which it has the potential to do. So, I think that is an important thing to do. The one other thing I'd add, though, is um,
2: you can, you can get next week, I took this week.
3: Okay, next week what you should do, and that's tomorrow by midnight, um, that they need comments, yeah. Um, I think one of the most powerful things that we can do is ask questions about where food comes from. Um, we've all seen the Portlandia episode. And it is true that you can really be annoying and silly in the process of doing this. But I have seen firsthand cases where a butcher being asked, "Do you have grass-fed meat?" Uh, a grocer being asked, "You know, do you have this cabbage organically?" Instead of, um, or where are you getting your meat at a where restaurant? Where did you hear that? Where did I hear that? Um, you know, the butcher shop on College. Um, In Berkeley. Yeah. And.
2: In the Berkeley bubble. In the Berkeley bubble,
3: well, it's true. In the Berkeley bubble, people responded, though, to those questions, and that gently harassing the people who are serving you food is worth doing. Um, When the waiters report to the chef that people are asking what kind of chicken we serve, what kind of chicken do we serve? Um, I think that the more of us who do that, um, the more thought will be given. Uh, To where those things come from And it it goes back to this Chipotle point That if you express an interest In the story of your food um, That story will get better
0: Okay, a question from the audience How do we move good food beyond the foodies To the bulk of the public In other words, gain support For the farm-to-fork infrastructure That is of some scale in the middle
2: Well, this is the voting with your fork concept, right? The more consumers demand, the more, as Michael just said, the 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 industry responds. So I was meeting toward the end of my tenure as deputy um, with Walmart executives. Some people say, well, that's a bad thing, organics in Walmart. I said, no, that's a good thing because it shouldn't just be for the Berkeley bubble, right? It should be for everybody, and that's, that's a good thing. And one of the things Walmart was looking at was how to buy... Re, Reorganize some of their distribution channels so they could do more locally grown to kind of go back to Sam Walton's vision of American made kind of stuff. So um, I think that constantly putting demands on the system, putting demands on your own institution. I don't know in terms of the dining halls here how much is locally grown. That was a big issue that I was involved in at Tufts and I got the food service people. Energized and helpful, and I got farmers organized, but at a certain point it really required the students to care and care more than they did Frankly, you always have this certain percentage of people that are highly motivated by these issues But in order to have real change, it's got to be a broader awareness-raising and activation so um, You know working in your own communities and your Dormitories and your schools, and um, and really kind of having those food dialogues
0: is really important. I agree. You mentioned um, earlier that the epicenter is not Washington. Duh, and I think duh, <laughs> duh, and I think this uh, that your comment fits with with that scenario, that the real change comes in communities and neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Another question. Given the imminent dangers posed on the environment, both social and natural, what's the most feasible and direct change in behavior the individual can make to improve our situation, other than asking your waiter where the food comes from?
3: Isn't that the same question? Isn't that the same the same
0: question? But I think it's more directed toward personal behavior.
2: Well, I always people always ask me um, how I shop. You know, I'm very vulnerable. How do you shop? I'm always paranoid when I'm in the grocery store. Me the too. people know who I am. Yeah, they're like, "What is she putting in her basket?" I see those lace potato chips. You only can eat just one. Um, but anyhow, I love food advertising. Uh, I always say that. Um, my husband, especially when I was deputy, he did the bulk of the grocery shopping because I was <laughs> not available. But I always say to people, you really want to shop the perimeter of the store. That's where you want to spend your food dollars. So we're spending the bulk of our money in the dairy case, in the produce, in the meat. You know what I mean? That's the sort of stuff that you spend the money in. Then you want to go into those processed food aisles afterwards. Mm-hmm. I'd almost like to see supermarkets set up in a totally different way. Mm-hmm. Um, you, know, uh, they're, they're, you know, there's been changes in retail, so not, they have checkout aisles where your kids don't see the candy and all of that. But really, if we worked with the, the groceries, there could be a whole different food environment that you go I and agree. shop differently.
3: I, I think you could. And, you know, the retailers are happy to sell healthy food and unhealthy food. So they, they can be very important allies. And, in fact, they make good money from the produce section, and they need to move it because it... It's perishable. Yeah. Um, and I think they control those bins more than they control the shelves where the soda is, which is, you know, there's slotting fees, and it's, it, that real estate is really owned by the manufacturers. Um, I don't know why they put produce right when you come in. So if you buy a lot of produce, you crush it with everything else. I've never understood that. <laughs> that's so that's one thing to reorganize. But, there was, um, but, you know, there's a lot of social engineering going on in the American supermarket. There's a reason that that sweet cereal is at your kid's eye level and the oatmeal is down on the floor and you can barely see it. Um, The more profitable items are, you know, they pay to be where they want to be. But we could use the same techniques to encourage healthier food. And I I read recently of a really interesting experiment that um, some behavioral um, economists and marketing people were doing to see if they could increase produce sales. Um, And what they did was they designed a new cart, a new shopping cart with a divider across the middle. And and it said on top of the divider, all produce north of this line. And it was at the 50% point. So it set this norm that, oh, 50% of the cart should be produce. And it protected the produce also. Uh, And they found produce sales went up 30%. So why doesn't Walmart do a cart like that? I mean, I think it would be a terrific experiment.
0: Um, This is an important question. What are your thoughts regarding the role that migrant workers play in the food system? How should we go about ensuring their protection from unfair working conditions, namely pesticide exposure, long hours, lack of collective bargaining, and also in the face of possible, hopefully, immigration reform? What's the connection there? Well,
2: I will say, um, people say it is the president talking about agriculture. I say the president's talking about immigration reform, so he's certainly talking about agriculture. We don't have any part of our society that's more dependent on undocumented workers. And here in California, there certainly was a coming together of farm workers and the farm industry to promote the Ag Jobs Bill, compromise, figure out a plan forward. Um, we haven't seen that enacted yet in Washington in part, the Obama administration decided they wanted the whole kit and caboodle. They didn't want ag going on their, its own. But right now, we have our whole industry at risk for lack of immigration reform. That's my start of the statement. Yeah,
3: and I, Well, you know, I think that this issue is, is, is of a piece with several other issues, which is we're addicted to cheap food. Um, and the pressures uh, to make food as cheap as possible are just fierce in this country. And, um, and that is the reason that we exploit farm workers and that is the reason that meat animals are treated the way they're treated and down the line. And we have done an amazing job in this country over the last, since the mid 70s really, driving down the cost of food. Um, to the point where our society, our economy depends on it. It's really baked in. And it makes it very hard to advance a reform agenda that would inevitably, as it should, raise the price of food. Food is not cheap, it's dishonestly priced because it, it assumes um, undocumented workers uh, being exploited and it assumes animal abuse, I mean, down the line. So the, the big challenge politically, I think, Um, is, and and of course, political leaders love cheap food. I mean, it's it's threatening. We saw in 2008, governments fell around the world because the price of food, of grain, doubled briefly. Um, It's very destabilizing when food prices go up. So how do we move toward the true cost of food without disadvantaging the poor and destabilizing the economy? I mean, and I think all these moves have to be coupled with efforts to make it easier for people to afford food. So you, you, uh, you improve the minimum wage on farms, you have a minimum wage on farms, and you, at the same time, increase the minimum wage across the country. I mean, so we have to give people the money to pay the true cost of food.
0: If there is no immigration reform, will that be reflected in the food system?
2: There are a lot of employers in the food industry who feel incredibly vulnerable, at risk, um, who, yeah, I think a lot of food production will go overseas, go to other countries. We've got to have immigration reform if we're going to maintain the industry that we have, let alone
0: moving toward the future. There's nothing more important. Uh, what can be done about factory farms? How can we make farming more sustainable in a world of seven billion plus? Well,
2: the presumption there is that we have to, and I hear this all the time in agriculture. It's sort of a mantra that so many meetings start with. We look at projections in world food popu- in world population. Therefore, we have to increase food production by a gazillion, zillion, billion. I don't know some a big amount. And, um, you
3: really are serious about data, aren't you?
2: I am very serious about data. Very analytical, very intellectual, Michael. <laughs> uh, anyhow, let me see if I can re- reclaim any credibility at all. Uh, my point here is that we have so much food loss, right, between distribution systems, political turmoil. In this country, The USDA, the Secretary of Agriculture, has just put out what he calls the food waste challenge. I mean, food waste is sort of like the second largest component of our landfills. So, I mean, it's not just about increasing production like this, which I think a lot of people presume. It's also doing a deeper dive into where food ends up and what we could do more efficiently with that food. So I'll throw that out for
3: thought yeah I agree i mean the the, the the idea that we that feeding the world means um, you know, doubling calories produced i mean we 're already uh, producing enough calories to feed everybody, um, and we 're not there are a billion people who are hungry and um, so we have to look at the pie i mean and forty and percent of it 's going to food waste. Uh, 20 or 25% were feeding animals to make meat and milk, which is um, not the most efficient way to use those calories. It takes 10 calories of, of, uh, of grain uh, energy to make one calorie of beef. Um, so that's a, that's a factor, too. Um, I think that the feed the world problem is, is, is more complicated than it's usually depicted. And that if you look ahead as to what is putting demands on food stocks, Um, Population is an element, um, but a bigger element may be changing tastes worldwide. The demand that the Chinese are putting on meat, for example. Um, Which, uh, I don't know if that's... I think it's an easier problem to deal with than population. Um, And the other big pressure on food going forward that we lose track of, but I I think we're about to be reminded of, is climate change.
2: Climate change and water.
3: And water, right. And that... um, so we may actually discover, you know, the, the question is usually, how can sustainable agriculture feed the world? We may discover that only sustainable agriculture can feed the world. Because if, we, if our goal in, in, re, in redesigning our agricultural systems is to make them a lot more resilient, use less water, sequester more carbon, all these things that increasingly are becoming important, um, we know how to do that.
0: How to address foreign acquisition of United States farms. Is that an issue that um, you see as problematic?
2: You know, we're becoming one world economy now. There, there's gobbling up of businesses and farms here, there, everywhere. But, yeah, no, it's um, farm access, farmland access is a big problem in this country. If you're a new guy, when you talk to aspiring farmers, what are the major impediments to you going into farming? There are three they always name. Access to capital, access to land, and health care. Now, we hope with Obamacare, despite the little fits that are going on now, that the health care issue will be dealt with, but that still leaves farmland access. So trying to make sure on a variety of fronts that we have Uh, avenues for our young farmers is really critical.
3: Yeah, I I think the land issue is really important. And, you know, we talk about land reform as something that needs to happen in the developing world, but we have our own issues with land reform here. And you have this generational transition. The average farmer, as you said, is like 60. Um, So there's a lot of farmland that's going to come up for sale at a moment when Wall Street and sovereign wealth funds around the world have decided that it's a really good investment. Um, so I think that, that that is a big concern, is who is gonna control the farmland and, and access to it. And of course the problem in the developing world is even more acute because you have countries like China buying up large amounts of farmland in, uh, in Africa. Some of the best farmland in Africa will be growing food for people in China. Uh, And that, long term, I think, is politically unsustainable.
0: All right. um, Where do you see, now this is the happy moment's time, where do you see change or reform that is encouraging?
2: Okay, I'm going to repeat myself. Go to that compass map. Because you will see creative, innovative, exciting things that people are doing all across the country. You can go in, you can search it by your zip code. You can go in and search it by a a keyword. You might say urban agriculture or community kitchen. You could search it for a different kind of entity. You might say for nonprofits. Or I'm a producer and I want to see what's available. So you can see what's going on in your own area, but you might say in California, I really want to see what they're doing in Iowa or Massachusetts, my home state, to get ideas. And you can link out to those people. So um, I think uh, that map shows that there's a lot to be optimistic about.
3: Michael yeah you should look at that it is i, I was looking at it today and it, and it is a kind of a nice atlas toward uh, of innovation going on all over the country and this is not a movement limited to the coasts anymore i mean these 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 experiments are happening all across the country everywhere i go i'm encouraged i see things i'm brought to visit whether it's schools with fantastic gardens or uh, farmers doing innovative work or aquaponics, um, you know, experiments in, in mixing fish and, and um, you know, all the, and all the innovation in agronomy going on um, all over the country. New rotations, new ideas, new ways of putting plants and animals together. Um, there's so much to be encouraged by. Um, and the, what encourages me most, though, I think, is that the revaluation of farming um, in this country. I mean, we've denigrated farmers in this country for 100 years. Um, it was, you know, almost government policy, right, to discourage people from farming. We, we took all the good students, you know, the guidance counselors would send them to the city, send them to college, get them off the farms, and there was this great brain drain on the farm as a result. Mm-hmm. And um, we wanted to shrink the number of farmers in this country. And that was official policy in this country. Less farmers would be good because we'd have more workers for factories. I think we're, we're, we're starting to reckon the cost of that, that denigration of farmers. And you've seen this um, elevation of their prestige in the culture, um, which has been very encouraging. People proud to say they're farmers, college-educated people deciding to become farmers. Um, we have the most unlikely farmers in this country now. I was at dinner and I met a guy who was farming in Nicasio or somewhere, and uh, he was the 125th employee at Google. And, you know, the, the interest of uh, tech money, frankly, in agriculture and farming, um, partly reflected in the Berkeley Food Institute, is is a very striking development. Um, this is a community of people with a lot of capital and uh, and a real clear vision of the future. And a great many of them are um, convinced that food and farming is what they want to be involved with. And uh, so uh, there's, there's so much to be encouraged by. I mean, it's, you know, look, this is a... This is a generational fight um, to change the food system, Um, and it's going to happen at many different levels, in the political arena, locally, uh, in the marketplace, Um, and we shouldn't get discouraged. We've just started.
0: Which generation are you talking about? (laughs)
3: Uh, the one coming up now it's really no it is it's people in their 20s I mean I don't you speak on college campuses a lot and the energy and there are people in this room the energy uh, amongst uh, people in their 20s people in college right now that this is their generation's issue Mm -hmm. and they've really grabbed hold and and leadership is going to come out of that and innovation is going to come out of that and so that's what fills me with hope
2: maybe we have the um, uh, future secretary of agriculture here in the room Michael
3: Hey, maybe we do.
0: (laughs) Thank you very much, Kathleen Merrigan, Michael Pollan. Thank you all for coming. And congratulations to all of you who are involved in changing the world. Thanks very much. Thank you, Linda. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.